So last week, we, uh, we, we heard an amazing kind of story, one of those jaw-droppingly amazing, wonderful stories. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Come out, Lazarus, he called to the tomb. And as Phil graphically described, hopping, wrapped in the grave clothes, Lazarus came out. I suspect there was a bit of a, a, a jaw-dropping moment for those who gathered to mourn. Zombies or something. Not zombies, life. Jesus then said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And it seems people were said in this passage that we read, many of the, uh, the Jews started to believe in Jesus. I mean, you would, wouldn't you? Dead Lazarus, alive Lazarus. Let me say that again, you don't look convinced. Dead Lazarus, <laughs> alive Lazarus. Wow, goodness me. But the storm clouds are gathering. We heard that, that after that event, the religious leaders got together and, and Caiaphas spoke, who is the high priest, Caiaphas spoke uh, prophetically. He said, it's better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. And so the wheels of the story are turning. Jesus, who's been amongst the people, moving about, speaking and teaching, doing amazing things, raising, calling together a group of followers who are seeing and beginning to understand, not yet fully, but saying, this is incredible. I want to be part of this. This isn't like just doing the same old nine to five, day in, day out. This is worth living for. <coughs> the clouds gather. Even amongst the great celebration, Lazarus is raised. But Jesus is being targeted. He's becoming an enemy of state. He's becoming inexorably focused, targeted, and said, this man must stop. We've told him to stop. We've tried to get him to stop. Now there's only one way we know to get him to stop. This life bringer must die. Six days before the Passover, in modern language, I don't know how many of you are counting how many sleeps there are to Christmas, maybe seven sleeps before the Passover. The day before he enters Jerusalem, that great event of the triumphal entry, the day before he enters Jerusalem for the last time, Jesus stopped in to see his old friends Martha and Mary and Lazarus in the suburb of Bethany. They were a family dear to his heart, two sisters and a brother who crop up lots in the gospel stories. And they seem to think of Jesus as their friend and brother too. We're told in the scriptures that he loved them. He doesn't tell us why. Maybe there's never a why to love. They called him Lord, and he is. But they weren't kind of counted amongst the 12, the disciples, that band of, of merry men. Not least, not in the formal sense. But when you read the Gospels closely, there is 
this kind of group of 12, significance in that, obviously with the Old Testament, 12 tribes and what Jesus is doing, forming a new people. But there's a whole lot of others. 72 get sent out. And there's this kind of group of, of people who just Jesus hangs with, hangs out with, loves being with. They were his friends. Do you know, do you, do you if I, you know, strip back the layers of your heart, when you, you talk about Jesus and being a disciple, would you say you're a friend of God? And would you say that, yeah, Jesus is my friend? That's not denying that he's Lord. Mary and Martha and Lazarus call him Lord. But they also know him as friend. That that's one of the most amazing privileges of the gospel. But there's just that question to us. You know, when you think of your relationship with God, is, is friendship with God kind of there in those descriptive terms? Or is it, well, I'm, I'm his follower. Yes, we are. Or, I, you know, he's my Lord. Yes, he is. But friendship speaks of relationship. Friendship means, is that one you like to hang out with? You enjoy the company. You kind of think, yeah, I get to hang out with Jesus. He's my friend. He's not like that annoying guest that comes at Christmas. Oh, we've got that, you know, uncle, uncle, uncle. I can't, I'm trying to think of a name not in the church now. And my mind's going blank. <laughs> uh, or auntie so-and-so. Let's do it that way got to put up with them they were like Jesus is coming for dinner great we like to hang out with Jesus he's our friend that's the invitation for all who would believe and and remember just a short time ago Jesus had worked a miracle in their house he'd been there quite often Lord, him who you love is ill they'd sent word the sisters had sent word to Jesus And he'd crossed the Jordan River to come to them, knowing full well that Lazarus was now dead and that the sisters would perceive this as too late. Then after Jesus had wept in front of his friend's tomb, Jesus the Messiah, the Savior, shouted out to him and restored him to life. He was at their house. And now he's returned to them with the chief priests and the zealots hot on his trail. You know, chatting with a Samaritan woman is one thing at the well, and healing a blind man on the Sabbath is another, but reviving corpses is of a different league altogether. You see, by raising Lazarus from the dead, Jesus has made it to the top of the religious rites' most wanted list. And his days are numbered. Six sleeps. And he knows it. And when he arrives at his friend's house in Bethany with his disciples, maybe they can see it in his face, the storm clouds gathering. So they take Jesus in and they care for him and they shut out the world for one night at least and they make supper for him. And maybe they're all chopping up the vegetables and making a stew whilst... He sits amongst them and they talk, tell stories, reminisce, share. We know from Luke that probably Martha's in charge. The others do what she tells them to do. Maybe Lazarus is helping out. I mean, mean, maybe he's suddenly got a new zest for life because he was dead, wasn't he? Maybe he's like looking at a potato with new, like this is a potato. 
I'm going to peel it. This is amazing. How do you peel a potato, Martha? Never done it before, but I want to do it now before I die again. Come on, how do you... And maybe Martha's directing the scene. Maybe he thinks he's not doing such a good job at peeling, so he gives him the wooden spoon and he's just to stir when she tells him. I wonder what it's like. I mean, this is just an aside, but I wonder what it's like for Lazarus. I mean, people must be knocking on his door at all hours saying, are you that Lazarus? You know, they say people are coming. Jesus, we're told at the end of the story, people, Jesus, they hear Jesus there, but Lazarus is there too. Dead man walking. Got lots of questions for him. I mean, what happens? What did you see? What did you feel? Come on, Lazarus, tell us. That is really interesting. I, uh, we, in the summer at New Wine, we, we met a lady, um, Sarah can tell you all about it, called Anne. Told you this story, and, and you, I showed you a video clip back in the summer. Anne was blind, but now she can see. Let me say that again, because you're not convinced. Anne was blind, and now she can see. I'm not making this up, am I, Sarah? Shout it, because I can't see you. Not. She's not now blind. Do you know, she was a, I met her a couple of weeks ago, and uh, the optician is completely baffled by this, because she was registered blind. She was on the list to have a, a, an assistant dog, guide dog for the blind, and... Um, uh, she was on benefits, she couldn't work, all those kind of things. And God has healed her, she can see. And the optician is baffled, said she just needs reading glasses now, which is not bad, really, she's happy with that. And, uh, and she said, you can drive again. That's amazing. But you know, one of the things she said after God restored her sight, and she's got this great story of walking back from New Wine, from the, the place that God has made, let her see again, to her tent, and all the children running around, Anne can see, Anne can see, and, and all the church gather around, and she doesn't know who they are, she's a bit freaked out, I don't know who you are. And then she hears the voices, and she goes, oh, you're Sue, and you're, you know, and I mean, just the nuts and bolts of a miracle is amazing. But then she was a bit scared, because everyone's been kind of saying, you know, she's like, everyone's, she's like a little celebrity, in the church, in the town, you're that one. You're that, and tell us about it. And she's a bit like, I just want to get on with life, thanks. Gosh, Lazarus. But tonight he's with friends. The main way, meanwhile, Mary might have slipped away and gone to find something in a room. And Martha's used to it. Mary's kind of that moody one. Martha rushed out to Jesus when he crossed the Jordan. And Mary... Stayed at home, she was hurt. If you'd come, Jesus. Anyway, finally the supper's on the table. They all sit down to eat, sharing their hopes and naming their fears, and Lazarus sits close to Jesus. I mean, it's the resurrection and the life. You want to be close to Jesus, don't you? I mean, he's the resurrection and the life. Be close to him. And Lazarus is maybe unaware that he himself is the cause of all this concern. You know, a trade has occurred and he doesn't even know it. Jesus was more or less safe as long as he stayed over on the other side of the Jordan, beyond the reach of the enemies in Jerusalem. But by returning to Bethany to save his friend, he signed his own death warrant. Practicing what he preaches, he's traded his life for the life of his friend, unless he can find a way to escape the net that's drawing in around him. Anyway, Mary's gone again. She's like that. But she comes back, and she's holding this 
this jar, this jar of clay in her hands. And right in front of everybody, she kneels down at Jesus' feet and she breaks the neck of the jar. Suddenly the room is filled with this, it's, it's spikenard, fragrant, sharp scent everywhere. And, you know, everyone could smell and all attention turns. You see, she's done something kind of rude, remarkable. First, she's kind of taken her hair out. She's let it down in this room full of guys. I mean, you just don't do that. A respectable woman never did. And then she's got this, this perfume and she's, she's put it on his feet I mean, if you're going to buy perfume for your wife or girlfriend this Christmas, you don't expect her to put it between a big toe and a little toes, do you? Kind of wiping it down there in the toe, toe zone. It's up here, isn't it? But she's rubbing it in. And, you know, this is, this is Mary, she's... she's Touching this feet of the teacher, the Lord. He's a man and she's a woman and they're not married. And then she gets her hair, which in that culture was kind of a sign of her glory and prestige. And she wipes his feet with her hair. Faux pas. I, I mean, have you ever been in those moments that just a little bit, you're on edge because everyone knows what they're meant to be doing and then someone makes a kind of social faux pas. I once was, uh, the very first time I went to a Japanese restaurant, I was, I was traveling with a friend. We'd never been before. We were in this Japanese restaurant. We were sitting on the floor. We'd gone to the Japanese restaurant because we thought it was kind of a bit weird and, you know, no one else we knew had. It was back, back in last millennium sometime. And, uh, and we were... Like, we didn't really know what to do. And they, the, the nice kind of waiters brought all the stuff. And we're like, this, we never had this food before. And we were eating it. And they brought this bowl, little bowl, kind of like this size. And they put it down. And, and we're like, oh, that must be Japanese tea. And we were like, but we weren't quite sure. And we, were, we picked the bowl. And we were about to drink it. And then we thought, ah, because we thought we didn't really know what to do. We better look what other diners are doing. And as we watch, we're kind of like, what do we do now? We noticed that it wasn't tea, nor to be drunk. It was the finger-washing bowl. We were spared the embarrassment. But it was embarrassing in that room with Jesus. This woman, Mary, had just crossed all the social conventions. She just crossed all the etiquette and norms and what would be good and polite in company and society. And she was embarrassing them all. This totally inexplicable, bizarre end to this bizarre act. You see, most of us are so moved, perhaps, by the scene or so kind of like, oh, gosh, what's going on here, that we overlook these eccentricities. Or maybe we just think, oh, well, okay, that's just what they did. The point is that she loved him, right? Now, in each of the Gospels, this story is told, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In the first two, the woman, we're told, who anoints uh, Jesus is unnamed, 
And in one story, she's in, uh, in the house of Simon uh, the leper, and she's a clearly described as a prostitute. And she pours out uh, this, this on Jesus' head. In the third, she's a sinner and a woman of the night. Uh, uh, this prostitute who washes his feet with her tears and covers them with kisses before rubbing them with the perfume. Only in John's account are we given the name Mary. And that she has this relationship with Jesus, that she's not a stranger. She's not just a happens chance woman who happens to come into Simon's house. She's a friend, a longtime friend, which makes this act even more peculiar. He knows she loves him. She's his friend. And Jesus loves her too. So why this public demonstration, this odd pantomime in front of all their friends? It's just over the top. Successive. She's gone overboard, as Judas is quick to point out. Why is this perfume, this ointment, not sold for 300 denarii and the money given away to the poor? Why are you spending all this money on Christmas presents? Give it away to the poor. You should have bought Tesco own brand, not Tesco finest. That's what Judas wants to know. He says, you know, a day laborer and his family could live, listen to this, a day laborer and a family could live for a year on what it cost or what that money, that bottle of perfume could have been sold for. And she's blown it on his feet. For God's sake, I mean, come on, woman. 15,000 pounds in today's money, give or take. Years Worship, uh, sorry, a year's wages in abandoned worship. You see, someone says this, true worship is not just beautiful words, but beautiful deeds. Total giving to God. We can worship, and we've been doing that in singing songs, and we should do. But here in this story, there's this fragrant offering and a sacrifice, and the, one of the things it tells us is it's costly. We can give our time to God's services, worship. We can give our money to God's causes and to the church and to, his, to people as worship. We can give our affections to God as worship. We can give our talents and gifts to God as worship. Worship, we're told, is a gift given. And good old Mary has upped the ante She's done it extravagantly. I mean, imagine remortgaging your house for a year and giving it away. Or thinking, yeah, I'm going to give a year away, a year's salary to Jesus. Worship, here you are, Jesus, a gift to you. A year's salary. Wow. Puts it in context, doesn't it? Here you are, Jesus. Leave her alone. Jesus says, brushing all these objections aside. She bought it so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. You'll always have the poor with you, but you don't always have me. Now, that's about as an odd thing to say as anything Mary did. He, Jesus, was the champion of the poor, still is. Who makes a regular practice of putting their needs ahead of his own. But suddenly he said, hang on a minute. 
Leave her alone. Leave me alone. You will always have the poor to look after until the end of time. Just this once, let her look after me because my time is running out. You see, whatever else Mary thought about what she did and whatever else everyone in the room thought about what she had done, Jesus knew that it was a message from God. Not the hysteric kind of ministrations of an old maid gone sweetly mad, but the careful act of a prophet. Everything around us smacked of significance. Judas the betrayer challenging her act. The flask of perfume, was it left over from her brother's funeral? Maybe she'd bought it ready to anoint his brother's feet and it hadn't got used. And out in the garden, a freshly vacated tomb that still smelt of the burial spices waiting for someone else to fill it. The clouds are gathering. The air was dense with death. And whilst there may at first have been some doubt about whose death it was, Mary's prophetic act reveals the truth. She was anointing Jesus for his burial, his feet first. And while her behavior may seem strange to those standing around, it was no stranger than that of other prophets who've gone before, like Ezekiel who ate the parchment scroll as a sign that he carried the word of God around inside him. Or Jeremiah who got a, a, a clay jar and smashed it into pieces and said, this is God's judgment on Judah and Jerusalem. Or Isaiah, what a prophetic action he took off all his clothes and wandered around barefoot saying, this is an oracle from God. Weird, eh? Prophets do these things. They act out a visual story provokes us to think, ah, scratch our heads and go, oh yeah. They act out the truth that no one else can see. And those standing around uh, watching either write them off as crazy or fall silent before this disturbing news that they bring from God. And when Mary stood before Jesus with the pound or the bottle of perfume, for a moment, just one moment, it could have gone either way. She could have anointed his head and everyone there would have proclaimed him king because that's what you did to kings. You anointed them on their head, but she didn't do that. When she moved, she dropped to her knees and put the salve on his feet, which could only mean one thing. The only man who got his feet anointed was a dead man. Jesus knew it. Leave her alone, he said to those who tried to stop her. Leave her alone. So Mary proceeded to rub his feet with the ointment, so precious that the sale of it would have fared a poor family for a year, an act so lavish that it suggests another layer to her prophecy. So lavish, there's nothing economical about the death of this Jesus. Just as there'd be nothing economical or prudent about his life. You see, in Jesus, the extravagance of God's love is made flesh. The extravagance of his love fleshed out amongst us. And in him, the excessiveness of God's mercy made manifest. The bottle won't be held back and admired and kept on the mantelpiece. 
This precious substance will not be saved. It will be opened and offered and used at great price. It will be raised up and poured out for all mankind. Emptied to the very last drop, this costly life. How will it happen? When will it happen? Can anything be done? No one in the room knows the answers yet to those questions. The storm is brewing in the distance, but Mary's given them a forecast. It will be bad. Very bad. But that's no reason to lock up and head for the cellar. What they need, whatever they need, there will be enough to go around. For there's nothing scrimping about the love of God and about the lives of those who serve him. You see, Mary had got it. She'd finally got it, and she acted on it. While some of those standing round thought her mad or smitten or, God forbid, wasteful, at least she and the ones whose feet she rubbed suspected the truth. Where God is concerned, there is no need to fear running out of nard or of life or of anything. Where God is concerned, there is always more. More than we can either ask or imagine. Gifts so lavish from God. What a story. What a story to tell at Christmas. A season of gifts and giving. What a story told in each of the Gospels that helps define us as the people of God. So, just some final thoughts. This is where the rubber hits the road. Ready? Don't zone out now. Zone back in. Worship. What she gave showed the worth she gave to Jesus. What she gave, this bottle of a year's wages. 15,000 pounds or thereabouts. Showed the worth that she gave to Jesus. How much do you think Jesus is worth? Our worship, our response to Jesus, our living for him will never rise higher than our vision and value of Jesus. Nothing, let me say this, nothing is too good for him in your life. Nothing is too good for him. A singer-songwriter, Dave Fellingham, said this, true worship needs to be demonstrated. Notice the woman said nothing. She didn't dance around in liturgical dance and sing a chorus. She said nothing. But her actions spoke louder than words. Worship flows one way. It's all to him, Jesus, and for him. If someone was to just observe you. If someone was watching you in worship, not just here this morning, but in your living and life, what would they deduce about your relationship with the Lord and your friend, the one you worship? How much worth does he have in your life? 
For me, I know I have so much to learn from Mary. And I'm trying to do that. David, the the great king, danced with all his might before the Ark of the Covenant. And someone close to him said, you just look daft, David. He said, I don't care. He's worth it. For us guys, this is where it gets personal. For us human beings, male and female, in a society that says, oh, no, don't, don't wear your religion on your sleeve. Don't, don't get overboard. Don't get too excited about Jesus. Yeah, get excited about your Christmas presents and get excited about your football team and, and get excited maybe about shouting at a politician or dancing around the living room to One Direction because it's a boppy tune, isn't it? How much is Jesus worth? Our prayer is that as people observe us as a church, as we gather on a Sunday, they'd say, look at how they love him. And it's not just in words, but the deeds of every day. Let's stand together.